0: Welcome back to another episode of All Else Equal. Over the last few weeks, we've been following the saga that is GameStop. We talked to the founders of Nuggies, uh, the master of payment for order flow, Robert Battaglio, and today we thought we'd dig in a bit deeper into the differences between retail and institutional investors.
1: Yeah, our goal with this episode is to find out a bit more about how trades are executed and how the current system might be asymmetrically balanced. We wanted to sit down with uh, Notre Dame finance professor, John Shim, who's actually pretty famous for developing a new way to receive and process trade orders. We'll link his paper in the description of the podcast. Awesome. Let's talk to John. John, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to Forrest and I.
0: My pleasure. So John, your research was cited in a January 8th, 2020 statement by SEC Commissioner Robert Jackson, and the statement begins... America's stock markets are riven by a fundamental conflict of interest. Exchanges both operate public data feeds and profit from selling superior private ones. Because exchanges have no economic reason to produce robust public data on stock prices, investors have long demanded a vote on how the public feeds are run. Rather than give investors a real say over the data that drives our markets, today's release merely invites for-profit exchanges to draft their own rules on these questions. Because that approach has failed investors before, and there's no reason to expect it to succeed now, I respectfully dissent. So there's a whole lot in there that we need to unpack, um, or that we could unpack. But I was hoping maybe you could, we could just start by telling me more about, like what does is, what is Robert Jackson Jr. mean by fundamental conflict of interest um, that's going on with these exchanges?
2: Yeah, so I think a good way of thinking about what Commissioner Jackson is talking about uh, is is to look at the research that I've done with co-authors um, and understanding how exchanges are making money. Uh, and that kind of goes back to research that we've done that shows that exchanges use a, a market design called the limit order book, which uh, is used by most exchanges around the world. And this limit order book design is actually flawed in the sense that it processes messages in continuous time in a serial process. Now that seems innocuous, but in the high-frequency era of trading, what this leads to is a never-ending arms race for speed. Wait,
1: can I stop you right there? How, does this, how did this order book get into place, right? Yeah. So let's go way back in sure. time,
2: right? So the limit order book has always kind of been in place when there were humans in the floors, when I was floor trading. Yeah. Uh, and at some point we made a mistake, I think, and translating the limit order book rules that humans implemented into strictly coded rules that a computer would implement. Because a human has the ability to say, hold on, there's a lot of stuff happening at the same time, effectively the same time. Let's figure out what the market price is, and Mm -hmm. then let's do trading there. Uh, But the computer does not have the ability uh, to do that. It knows that it has to process messages in a serial fashion, uh, and as a result, being just a tiny bit faster than the competition actually becomes economically valuable. And to give you a sense of magnitudes, that tiny bit today is one microsecond. So one millionth of a second. Wow.
0: To- so serial process order, just to take a step back, it just means that like, if Jason submits this right before I do, yeah. even if it's a millisecond
2: before, yeah. his thing clears before mine. That's right. Okay, I process Jason's order. Okay. okay. Exactly. And so right.
1: again, thinking about this back to humans, It would be more so that simultaneously, me and Forrest are handing you orders and you're like, oh, well, I got these two orders. I don't know who came in first. And so now I'm figuring out what the price should be based on these orders. Right. And computers can't. Yeah, and other information. But the
2: computer can't do that. It's just, it'd be like, oh, Forrest came first. Yep. Right. That's right. So that, that incentivizes both of you to be as fast as possible. Yeah. Uh, And that's this never-ending arms race.
0: Could you give this like an example of how, so how do I monetize that or how do I arbitrage off of that opportunity? So I'm a nanosecond or a millisecond faster than Jason. Like how do I make money off of that?
2: Yeah. So the example that we use in our research is responding off of news or, or information that is basically publicly observable. Mm -hmm. So everyone can kind of see it and it has obvious ramifications for stock prices or securities prices. Uh, And, as a result, everyone tries to incorporate this information at essentially the same time. But because the Continuous Limit Order book processes messages one at a time, there's no such thing as everyone responding at the same time. Yeah, right. Someone has to be first. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, if there are profits to be made to incorporate obvious information, for example, something that says the S&P 500 should be higher, then we'll all race to buy quotes or buy offers to sell that mm-hmm. are basically stale that don't incorporate the new information. And because if there are, say, five high-frequency trading firms, and there's only one person that owns the stale quote that's at the S&P uh, it's likely that the, H- the HFT snipers, quote, win the race to respond. Because if we all get messages, if the limit order book gets messages at the same time from six different people, one to cancel the stale quote and five to snipe, uh, it's likely that the five snipers will win most of the time. Wait, but isn't this
0: good? So Jason is a high-frequency trader yeah. sniper, which I like that. I and love that. this Okay, all right. And I'm just like this like slow guy who's like just stumbling around. And so new information is released, and Jason says, like, okay, new information is released. That's going to, like, we should update our beliefs about the price of this particular asset, up or down, whatever yeah. it is acts on that right and that causes prices to change like that's good right yeah that that, what markets are supposed to do
2: yeah so i think there is an element of uh, that this is information getting into into markets in a very efficient way as fast as possible which we think is kind of good for market efficiency we think we think this is maybe markets working very well uh i think for two different two reasons and one kind of bigger picture reason this is this is actually harmful one is since there's nothing built into markets to connect them at a very plumbing, at a basic plumbing kind of level. If you have two markets that represent economically very similar things, there's nothing to tie them together except for arbitrage. Mm -hmm. And the way that we think about this is that obvious information that affects one security will affect another and will lead to arbitrage profits. Uh, And actually, if you look fine enough, if you look close enough in terms of time intervals, those markets can't possibly be efficient with respect to one another because they can't move at exactly the same time. So at kind of the second level or the millisecond level even, uh, it looks like prices are very efficient. But the fact that arbitrage exists, if you zoom in close enough at the level of a microsecond or 10 microseconds, it looks like markets are completely inefficient, Mm -hmm. which is why arbitrage exists in the first place. And the second is this is uh, what economists term as kind of adverse selection but it's a weird form of adverse selection. When we think of adverse selection, we typically think of uh, adver- adverse selection comes from asymmetric information. Mm-hmm. You know something that I don't. Right, yes. And so as Jay- a result- Jason is be- the
0: sick person, knows that he's gonna be sick. The exactly. health insurance company doesn't, doesn't know, know that. So Jason buys insurance for sure. So he's right. adversely selected. Exactly, and that market.
2: costs more to health insurance providers. This is, this is a big kind of studied, studied thing in economics. But this is a weird form of adverse selection in the sense that it comes from public symmetric information. It's Mm -hmm. not asymmetric information. It's something that everyone knows at the same time, that everyone's responding to it essentially the same time, uh, but still leads to this adverse selection type of cost. And this ultimately comes out of the pockets of investors because liquidity providers, market makers, they're going to get adversely selected Mm -hmm. off of stuff that they knew. Uh, and as a result, they have to pass those costs on to investors in the form of uh, wider bid-esque spreads and, and reduced debt, so Could higher you, higher transaction costs. So my
0: my finance knowledge has just reached its limit. The last statement <laughs> about, like, about wh- so why is this bad for market makers? I don't quite understand that.
2: yeah. So it's almost as if I'm in the market, I'm quoting, I'm willing to buy and sell, that's the service I'm providing, I'm gonna charge you something for that, basically sitting around to buy and sell. Okay. You know, as I get information, I'm gonna move my quotes around to reflect information. So if the S P 500 should be a little higher, I'll move both my, my offer to buy and my offer to sell, I'll move both of those a little higher, okay. and I'm just to basically charge you a small, uh, small spread. Now, if I see information that the market should be higher, and I go to move my quotes, but you snipe me before I can move my quotes. then in a way I've just oh, lost money. So
0: you're paying some, well, you're not really paying a penalty. You're, you're, you're forced to incur some costs just because you're a little bit slower than the exactly. snipers. Okay.
2: Yeah, And even if I'm almost the same speed or essentially the same speed, because we, we get to the limit order book at essentially the same time, one of us still has to win. And so if, if you, you can think about it, in our paper, we describe this as effectively random, right? Because there might be some random differences in latency, but if on average we're the same speed, uh, then most of the time I'm going to get picked off because there's four other snipers against just one mo- one cancel that I'm submitting. Mm-hmm. So can I try and unpack it just a little more? So
0: sure. you've got these market makers that are providing liquidity. So they're serving this role of you buying and selling, yep. and moving their their quotes up and down. And like that's a service. And so, if you have this sort of high frequency trading, sniping going on, you're
2: imposing a bigger cost on them. So, okay, so how are they going to respond? So, they're going to basically charge investors more in terms of what they're charging above and beyond, quote unquote, fair value. Right? Because so, it's if the spread. Exactly, the bid ask spread. So, that
0: thing becomes larger in right. response to this, if them losing money on the sniping. Exactly. Okay. Think about
2: it at the currency. If you, if you go to an airport and there's a currency exchange, Right. And you want to exchange dollars for euros because you're taking your vacation in Europe. Uh, now, you could turn your dollars into euros and they'll charge you something for that. Mm-hmm. But they don't tell you the cost. They just give you the conversion rate. Mm-hmm. So if you converted your dollars dollars to euros and then right away turned around and turned your euros into dollars, you'd lose basically the bid-ask spread. So that's the spread we're talking. That's the implicit cost of transacting by investors uh, that you see at the airport currency exchange, but also in in trading, trading and mm-hmm. selling stocks, like buying and selling stocks. Okay, and so you know,
0: in a in a sort of an idealized efficient market, that thing would be very very small. Yeah. Right. To to serve as, um, just like, I guess like facilitating transactions, right? Yeah. Facilitating liquidity. yeah.
2: We want people to be able to share risk by trading. We want people to be able to allocate their savings into different investments. And if the cost of trading is very high, then that may uh, that may put sand in the gears to prevent them from getting optimal allocation, optimal risk sharing, things like that. Uh, so right now, what we have is, if there's all this sniping activity, the bid-esque spreads become wider, that comes out of the pockets of investors. But right now, that's just a transfer. That's just a transfer sure. from investors mm-hmm. to uh, fast, high-frequency traders. Uh, what, what we then show in our research is that actually, What they'd end up doing, what high-frequency traders end up doing is they end up spending all of these sniping profits. They end up spending it on new speed technology. And we argue that this is actually wasteful. This is actually a welfare welfare loss because you can think of it as a very inefficient arms race. Where if all of the high-frequency traders could agree to say, we're all really, really fast now. We should just stop spending money on speed technology. Right. Because if we all stayed the same speed, we'd all split the sniping profits. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as soon as Jason gets faster, then now I have to spend a bunch of money to get as fast as Jason and and force has to spend a bunch of money to get as fast as me. Mm -hmm. So we're spending a bunch of money to maintain the same share of the sniping prize when actually we could just keep it as profits without spending this money. But we can't because of uh, what economists know as a a prisoner's dilemma. Right. So that's a sense. The market failure here is this failure of coordination. And we're all going to spend this money on what we think of as technology that's kind of socially wasteful. It's We think of it as kind of like burning up money mm-hmm. because this technology investment is unlikely to have any positive spillover to the economy. We're talking about literally a microsecond savings from Chicago to New York in this very, very specific, specialized way uh, and things that have led to, you know, People discovering that, you know, light travels faster through through fiber than through uh, or sorry, air than through through glass or through fiber right, optic right. cables. And physicists knew this, but this became very important in light of in light of high frequency trading. Yeah, you've got this great
0: example in, in one of your papers where it's like, all right, we're gonna spend all this money to lay a fiber optics line in between Chicago and New York, is yeah. that it? Yeah, and that saves like, all right, that's going to shave down our milliseconds by from sixteen to thirteen or yeah. something like yeah. that. And now all of a
2: sudden, like, it, am I right in saying that like that thing is no longer? It was three hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. uh, and in a matter of a couple of years, it's obsolete. Wow. Yeah. Why not just move closer to New York? So the the Chicago Merc- Mercantile Exchange, which oh. is the biggest futures exchange, they they have their exchange or data center located in in near Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, The stock exchanges have most of their stuff in Northeast New Jersey. Uh, So you have to get information from Chicago to New York. But I'd actually argue that it doesn't even matter that it's Chicago to New York. If everyone was in New York, but still in different geographical locations, uh, even though they were just a few miles apart, uh, you'd still have the arms race. It's just tighter. tighter You still see this... Uh, arms race between exchanges that are all in northeast new jersey from mawa to secaucus to Carteret, mm-hmm. uh, and they have different technology that specialize for these shorter distances these things um, like these lasers that are uh, a little bit more faster but lower bandwidth than microwave so it starts to get comical uh, but this is the length to which the arms race is because the arbitra- arbitrage opportunities, are exactly, like because it's so valuable. Just think about it this way: there's free money that you can pick up, but in order to pick it up, you have to be faster than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're faster than everyone else, you just get this pile of money. Yeah. Uh, and so people will spend as much as possible. Actually, as mu- equal to, in in our paper, exactly how much you're picking up is what they're willing to spend on. On getting because it's so, a because it's such a competitive market. Exactly. So
1: there's so there's really no incentive to share the profits
2: in this way, right? Yeah. And so you think like this will always persist. So that's that's what what our paper shows. Now they do have uh, they do have the incentive to try to to coordinate, but that yeah. that's not a stable. Economists it's always talk- on the prisoner's dilemma, Nash- right? Yeah, yeah. The prisoner's dilemma is always the case that like exactly.
0: we would be better off coordinating, That's right. exactly. but we always have an incentive to screw the other person, right. and we're not going to coordinate. Exactly. It's, it's <laughs> exactly. funny because we t-
1: I talk about this in class about repeated game Nash equilibria and how yeah. it's possible, right? Yeah. And so we still play these games in class, right. and we still don't get to the Nash Equilibria. Yeah, yeah, This is a perfect real life example of that. Yeah. So then, how do we? How do we? So if it's can the is is there going
2: to be a market fix to this? Yeah. So. So this is a very long-winded way of, of getting to your initial question. Um, and so the, the way that we think about this this market fix is in our paper, we argue for a very simple market design change, which is just run an auction every millisecond, uh, as an example, in terms of the time range. And uh, so that's a 1,000 auctions per second. And what that does is it, it lets a lots of things happen at essentially the same time, right? So for most investors this doesn't do anything because you know the the chance that you want to buy 100 shares of GameStop coincides with other market activity, the probability of that happening is almost zero, mm-hmm. right? In most milliseconds in most stocks, nothing happens at all. Like not even a quote change like if the ask moves or, you know, a quote changes from 100 shares to 200 shares. Right? So in most milliseconds nothing happens. But in some milliseconds There's a lot of stuff that happens, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is everyone responding off of the same information. And in those cases, we just batch up all the orders and then we change the nature of competition. Instead of who can get to the exchange first, competition on speed, the auction transforms that to competition on price. Who's willing to pay the highest price price in the auction? And so Bertrand competition kicks in and then we get essentially the informationally efficient price. We get that revealed in the auction through through competition without people getting adversely selected
0: could could you make that example maybe a little bit more clear so let's see i'm having trouble about thinking about an auction taking place over the course of a millisecond yeah um something happens information is revealed and we all want to act on it and we're all very good at acting very quickly on really quick information or or something like that um let's say that we want to like, we want to update our price upwards. Yeah. Right. So, like, something becomes more valuable to this information. So, there's these stale quotes out there. Yeah. Right? That say, like, this thing is at the old price, the old lower price. So, Jason and I both want to buy this at the, the lower price. Right. And so, we both submit bids to buy this thing. We're yeah. trying to buy the lower price. But the way the auction works is if now there's competition within that block, Jason and I are now competing with each other. We're not sniping off of this, like, very stale... Lower price bid. Right. We are competing with each other, and presumably that means that the price we're going to pay is higher for that right. thing for that old stale quote, which was at a lower price. Yeah.
2: So there's actually two ways in which the auction prevents sniping. One is I have a full millisecond to cancel my quote if I'm the stale quote. Oh, and wow. you, can oh, you can cancel it too. it too, so I can cancel it. You a full millisecond. exactly. <laughs> plenty of time. Uh, so that's he, amazing to me. First of all, just like wow. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Um, so I could cancel it, but even if I'm not paying attention and you guys both try to stipe my stale quote, uh, well then it'll become, let's say that the stale quote's at 50, it should be at hundred, right? It's a pretty big jump. Uh, so then Jason says, well, I'll, I'll buy it at 51. And, and Forrest says, well, I'll buy it at 52. And yeah. then you know you do the whole Bertrand thing up yeah, to right. basically just below a hundred. Yeah. Uh, so in effect, you're pricing in the information because the snipers then have to compete with each other to try to get the to try to get the stale quo, and competition pushes the price up to the informationally efficient price. The
0: biggest social cost of all this is that we have so many brilliant, talented people that are doing this and not doing something else. That's one argument yeah. that we make. <laughs> that are just yeah. Like, oh my gosh. Like, That's exactly
2: one of the. Ar- I mean, we don't show it formally in the model, but. You know, a lot of this spending on on speed in this arms race is not for physical capital, but for human capital. I think anecdotally, I've heard that, you know, 50% of PhD students from top, top physics programs in, in the country. Get picked off for finance? They they end up going to finance. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and a lot of them are going to high frequency trading firms.
0: Huh. Okay, can we take a step back to, um, coming back to the first quote, um, how do these exchanges make money? That's what yeah. I, I still don't quite understand.
2: So so exchanges, you, what, one way you can think about exchanges is that if you want to snipe stale quotes on NASDAQ, you have to be really, really fast. And NASDAQ has essentially market power over the ability to snipe stale quotes on NASDAQ. Because if you want to be fast on NASDAQ, you have to put your computer in NASDAQ's data center. And you have to subscribe to NASDAQ's data feed, the fastest one that they have. So you can see the, the view of the market as soon as the market is updated. Okay. Uh, and so if you want to be in NASDAQ's data center and get this data feed, you have to pay NASDAQ. Uh, so if you want to snipe still quotes on NASDAQ, it doesn't help you to get the data feed from NYSE or, or put your machine in NYSE's data center. Uh, because that helps you be fast on NYSE, but no, I- not on NASDAQ. Uh, so essentially Nasdaq has market power. In another word, in other words, they sell arms in the arms race. They sell the ability to snipe stale quotes on their exchange that no one else can sell. So as long as Nasdaq has some market activity, some quotes on their exchange, then they're able to sell this, this valuable thing, which is the ability to snipe those quotes. And so that gets to this, I guess, the content of Robert Jackson's uh, quote, which is, data today is very valuable for high frequency trading firms, because they're able to identify cases where they're able to snipe stale quotes, and they're also required to provide data through uh, from regulation. Yeah, that's that's essentially essentially slower and worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that data is is not as good as oh, as this is data. the publicly
0: available data that they're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Okay.
2: So
1: Nasdaq has the power to basically shut down the ability to snipe these quotes if they Wait, want. An is incentive. that
2: right? Well, they, they what they could do is they could delay their proprietary data feeds, but they wouldn't have an incentive uh, to do. no, I, unless the regulation forced them in exactly. some capacity. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if the fact that the public data feed is bad. Uh, would change anything in terms of sniping? I don't think it's possible to make the public data feed as good as the private data feed, uh, but I think the incentives are clear. That exchanges have an incentive uh, to charge a lot for data mm-hmm. because that's their way of extracting that's part lever, of the sniping right? prize. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. So if I if I was a if I was an exchange, would I should I be worried about like AOC and other people coming in to regulate? How we provide data.
2: So I think that they are protective of this. They they've tried to raise, raise prices, uh, and the SEC has shut it down because of things like the fair access rule and Price other on regulations to this or prices. So what they do is they they charge uh, they charge really really high prices for faster data feeds or slightly. Closer connections to the matching engine, right? Okay. Um, and and the fees are are much much higher than you know if you're you know two two um, rooms away in the data center versus right next to the matching <laughs> engine. Okay. Uh, and and the SEC has shut down some of these some of these proposals uh, because they it, in their eyes it violates some of the regulations in this really complicated regulation called Reg NMS. Okay. Uh, but I think that they are concerned because. Uh, one thing that our research shows is that you know, exchanges, the fact that they have an incentive uh, to charge a lot for, for data and collocation because they're able to extract sniping rents also means that they would then like to preserve the status quo. They'd like to have the limit order book as the market mm-hmm. design because the limit order book is what allows for sniping in the first place. So if you and switch, that's how they get the rents. Exactly. Yes, right? yeah, so, okay. so the limit order book creates sniping and then NASDAQ can then charge the snipers to snipe. Yeah, right. Uh, and if they got rid of sniping, then where they wouldn't the, be able to charge the
0: snipers. So where yeah. does the pressure go in that case? So it's like, this is like, I'm just in my head, head, there's like this picture of like, I don't know, like a cylinder with like all sorts of holes and water is like poking out everywhere. You can yeah. poke holes in some and like water's going to come out of different holes. So like if you if you, if you you plug up this pressure, so you say, we're, we're going to get rid of this rent for this group. Yeah and if you get rid of this high frequency trading like where does the pressure go so let's say we, we do the frequent batch auctions yeah yeah like you got rid of you've got rid of this like incentive to snipe mhm does that just mean that we have like i guess the optimistic take is that we're going to have less wasteful spending on things flying through microwaves yeah. to like get faster information
2: that's the way we see it. I think I think that there are ways of addressing the issue that are not addressing the root cause. So people have proposed uh, a financial transactions tax, which is to, tra- to tax each financial transaction, you know, a relatively small amount. And I think that comes from place uh, from some people, not from all people, but from some people as a way of taxing the people that trade the most. And who are the people that trade the most? High frequency traders. Yeah. So it's a way of trying to tax high-frequency traders to get rid of um, bad behavior, uh, sometimes unspecified bad behavior from high-frequency traders. Uh, Our analysis actually shows that uh, a financial transaction tax does reduce sniping, but actually ends up harming investors more, because ultimately investors have to also pay this financial transaction tax. So the amount it reduces sniping by uh, isn't offset by... um, it doesn't offset the amount they have to pay extra in taxes. So, I see. Uh, so it reduces reduces the sniping, which is going to reduce that bid-ask spread, which is
0: good for investors, right? right? But investors also have to pay the tax.
2: Yeah, which and, adds on to if the effective spread that they have to pay. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, sure. That's
0: like another way of thinking about exactly. that. Tacking exactly. Tacky the spread.
2: Yeah. So I think there are, you know, there may be other reasons to justify a financial transaction tax. Some people think of this as a pres- implementation of a progressive tax. Uh, That's right, and I don't have much to say about you know, we we, get, we tax the Wall Street fat cats exactly. <laughs> uh, so I don't have much to say about that. But what I do have to say is is I don't think it's very effective in eliminating sniping specifically. Uh, if there are other specific things in HFT that people want to get rid of, you know, it may harm some of that. It may eliminate some of that behavior, but I think for sniping, it doesn't uh, it doesn't get rid of it. And part of that is because it doesn't address the root cause, which is the limit order book creates mm-hmm. these these opportunities, uh, and there have been other market designs. IEX also addresses, uh, which is which is uh, an exchange that was started by the protagonist in the in Michael Lewis's book Flash Boys, uh, which had a lot of attention in in 2000, 2010, 2011. Um, but that market design also doesn't necessarily address the. The root cause, whereas whereas freaking batch auctions is exactly designed to address the root cause of of sniping that is created by a limit order book.
1: So no one's going, unfortunately, going to pick up auction batch auctions because there's no and there's no like money making incentive there, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's, so how that's do you the role incentivize that? Central,
0: central planner. That's right. right. That's the role of like the regulator yeah. is to like force. Look, there's a socially optimal solution. We're yeah. going to force this upon you, even though your incentives are bad. But there's got to be an incentive. There's got to be, is there a market incentive
2: to institute the batch auctions? So we do think that if someone were to do it, it would be from someone that has relatively little market share. Because um, if you have little market share, then you're not able to extract as much um, by charging for sniping uh, or, a, or a new startup. Like and this ideas. is an exchange, right? So this an, is exchange. Is like, mm-hmm. so an exchange. So this is like, it's an exchange because exactly. they were going to implement but you could do it from a regulatory
0: perspective, right? Could the SEC just say like, "No, you're all going to move to this frequent batch auctions because John Shim thinks it's a good idea." Yeah, yeah, that's exactly that what we do. Be- <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we had uh, Robert Battaglio on a couple weeks ago talking about payment for order flow, um, and could you could you tie this together? Because so my takeaways from payment for order flow was something like, I can buy. So Jason is like a, a dumb investor and I can buy this stuff from him. I can kind of cream skim off of like these these traders I don't think are smart. And then I can take these orders and then presumably I can monetize that somehow. I can make better trades with these orders. Um, that's my naive understanding of this. Yeah. Like how is that related to this like super, super fast sniping, which where, where payment for order flow seems like much seems like a super slow
2: version of this or is it or is it not so i think they're pretty unrelated uh in some ways but maybe related in other ways uh and and i don't have published research on this necessarily so this is this is more of my understanding and my opinion i, I have some industry experience as well uh so so this stemmed from that the way i think about Payment for order flow is basically how you describe it. it. Part of it is cream skimming. Part of it is trying to induce competition, uh, which wasn't the case maybe in the early days of payment for order flow, but certainly is today. Robinhood has at least two, probably more, um, you know, hedge funds or high frequency trading firms that are vying for Robinhood order flow and they're paying for it. Uh, so in that sense, they're competing for the order flow, but they're also getting the juiciest stuff. They're trading small orders, um, which are associated with smaller costs and those orders tend to be uninformed. So on average, they, they don't tell you where the stock is going. These are exactly the people that you want to trade with. Uh, going back to the adverse selection (laughs) kind of example, this is like providing health insurance, uh, to only the healthy people. Right. Uh, that's a good deal because you don't have uh, the big costs associated with, with serious disease. Um, so I think that's, that's basically my understanding, which is basically what you, what you said. Uh, I think another way in which high-frequency trading firms are interested in getting the order flow is that it helps you understand other order flow. So if I see all the order flow from, uh, from Robinhood, and I know this order flow tends to be uninformed, then I can start to understand better other order flow that I see, maybe on an exchange. Uh, so if I'm a market maker on an exchange, then I could start to understand what type of order flow on the exchange looks similar to order flow from Robinhood, mm. and then infer better what order flow is likely to be informed or uninformed. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that that's another way, and, and research in the literature has shown that This may be part of why order flow is very, very important uh, or very valuable to high frequency trading firms, high frequency market makers, is partly because you'd like, if you have to sell insurance, you'd like to sell it to the healthy people. Right. Uh, But also that that may be able to better identify who's healthy and sick when it's not so. So you can identify the noise, which means you can identify also, if you can identify the noise, you can identify what is
0: like intelligible to as well. Exactly. So, how is this related to, I mean, so Robinhood has been criticized for selling order flow, um, but they also provide this service. of They provide you know, trading at zero explicit price to consumers. Um, if we're thinking about regulatory changes, so if you get rid of payment for order flow, like does Robinhood now have to charge prices for trading, or does like that pressure go somewhere else? Yeah.
2: So I think that there's a few ways that this could go. One is that Robinhood just decides. Well, Citadel had a great business. I should just do what they're doing. Mm. I'll just what's called internalize the order flow. So there's a bunch of people trading GameStop. Maybe they, you know, very, very consistently want to buy and sell. Uh, I can charge the buyers a spread and the sellers a spread. And since buyers and sellers arrive randomly and so frequently, I can basically collect the spread. Just collect the spread. Uh, now, Robinhood isn't as good as this at doing this as Citadel, probably much, much worse. So that could lead to higher prices in the bid-ask spread uh, while still charging zero commissions. Um, so it could lead Robinhood investors to be worse off.
1: But presumably, investors in Robinhood would have no idea that they're worse off either. Though,
2: right, right, because these these bid-ask spreads are, uh, they're hard to figure out. Yeah, right. Um, they're hard to figure out, you know, you need to know what was the Bid and the ask in the market. Mm-hmm. What's the midpoint? How much more did I pay relative to what I would have gotten if I went to Nasdaq? These are really complicated things to measure. Uh, big, sophisticated investors have trouble measuring this. So, for an investor to do this is is so basically I can't do this on my Robinhood act. This <laughs> is <laughs> very very difficult. Okay, but then yeah. going back to the data thing, that's part, I think part of the reason why the SEC cares about data is because they'd like to have as much transparency as possible for if not investors, but for people doing research or people that have access to the data, they can then start to see if investors in aggregate are paying more or less than um, you know, in one proposal versus another or one microstructure versus another market structure. Um, with t- the Robinhood thing, I think, so there's, there, I think there's two ways that could go. One is that Robinhood then internalizes the order flow instead of selling it. The other is they send it off to exchanges. Uh, in that case, I'm less certain about which way the market goes, because it's possible that uh, if you have a health insurance market, and then all of these healthy people that were previously not in the market they get added to the market, that then reduces the. It's where the retail gross. investors are the healthy people. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. Right. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Keep going, please. Um, so it's not. It's not. Op- so on paper, that sounds like you know, if you have people that are skimming the cream. And then, and then you add those people back in. That that then reduces the, the average cost of providing health insurance, and that that could be the case. There's there's also lots of institutional frictions, like there's, uh, kind of goofy minimum tick sizes. So ticks, uh, stocks can only only be traded in increments of a penny. So for you know a ten dollar stock, it's actually a pretty big right, price increment. Uh, so it's not clear that you know if investors are trading ten dollar stocks. Uh, that they'd actually even see this improvement because mm-hmm. it would be so penny.
1: I remember Robert talking about how that was actually much larger back in the day before, oh, yeah, right? right? It was like 12 cents or something
2: like that. Yeah, it used to be a, it used to be a quarter of a dollar and then eight of a right. dollar and then a penny.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah. So Ken Griffin explicitly said this, which I was surprised about in, in his uh, congressional testimony, that the reason why Citadel can do such a good job at doing better for investors is because they're not restricted by quoting in increments of a penny. Oh, sure. So they can improve at sub-penny prices. And you think, like, saving half a penny isn't a big deal. But remember, for a $10 stock, you might be buying a 1,000 shares or yeah. 10,000 shares. And in that case, that, that actually might end up being yeah, real
1: money.
0: Yeah, it's material. One thing that I think is lost in this argument sometimes is from, like, when you hear people that are kind of ranting and raving against Wall Street. So like, you know, like finance people are making all this money.
1: That's coming from Arts and Letters, right? This is the Arts and Letters (laughs) official stance is
0: that Wall Street people make too much money. (laughs) That's the eloquent Arts and Letters stance. Um, I think one thing that is lost is like lots of people here are providing services. right? Lots of people in the finance industry are providing valuable services. Of course, they're not going to do this unless they're compensated for it, right? Okay. But then it's like, how much of this, I don't know, I still don't know how to think about, like, how much of this is, like, compensation for actual legitimate economic services people are providing? Like, Robinhood, like, providing this platform to, like, allow me to, like, lose money on dumb trading, right? Yeah. Like, that's a service. Um, they should be compensated for that. Versus, like, rent seeking. Versus, like, extracting profits without, any, without creating any economic value. This is maybe too... Big, a scope of question for you but like is there a way for me to think about what proportion of finance is rent seeking versus like creating
2: economic value I just don't have like a good concept yeah. in my head for thinking about that problem so this is this is one that's hotly debated amongst you know finance financial economists uh, one joke is that you know if you work at if you work at General Mills and you make cereal, one perk of that job is you get a lot of free cereal. So if you work in finance, one perk of the job is that you get you a lot of, of free, free money. money. <laughs> yeah. um, so that that's like one of the jokes. No, it's a, but it's a serious the debate. The official and of stance is that that joke is not funny. <laughs> Please continue. But it, it is a it is a very serious debate. Ultimately, I think that there is a lot of rent seeking in finance, and I think that. Oh, and I should clarify what I mean by rent seeking. It's
0: just like it's literally like me expending a lot of effort to like take money, like transfer money from like Jason to me or something yeah, like that, right? Yeah. And not create any value. It's just like squeezing out as much as I can,
1: and exactly. like and
2: having to do something costly in order to do that. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So I think that there is a lot of rent seeking uh, in finance. How big of it as a fraction of uh, of the finance industry? I I don't, I don't know. Uh, I also don't know what the right size of the finance industry is. Some people yeah. even reject that question. One yeah. of my um, one of my uh, kind of advisors before he he left Chicago uh, was was very adamant about this. Like, how do we know what the right size is? The right size is what the market says the size should be, uh, which is very Chicago <laughs> is. kind of view. Uh, but I think that you know ultimately I think. There is a part of finance I think is very important, which is, and research has shown that uh, countries that have more developed uh, financial sectors have faster GDP growth. Uh, Because ultimately, the point of the finance industry is to get stuff or capital or money or whatever it is uh, to the places that can best use it. Uh, So in essence, they're intermediary. I think some people are uncomfortable with the fact that an intermediary makes is accountable for, I don't know what it is today, 10% of GDP. Mm-hmm. seems like a large number for an intermediary, but maybe it's not. Because Bank, maybe banks, it, like, banks make lots of money. Yeah. Right? Like as like for this function. Exactly. This function. So I think it's a it's a really good question. I don't have a very insightful answer, but I think certainly there is a lot of rent seeking. Certainly there is a lot of productive activity. whether that's 90-10 or 10-90. I, I, I don't know. But I think the Robinhood thing is interesting, right? Because uh, it allows people to trade. For almost free, and there's research that shows going back to the '90s that uh, that when retail investors trade, uh, they actually don't beat the market. They actually don't lose to the market, which is what you'd expect in an efficient market: is that stocks are basically priced right, mm-hmm. and regardless of what you pick, if you pick throwing darts, you're basically going to get the risk-adjusted return. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that the people that traded more ended up losing more. Because they paid more in fees. Uh, so that begs the question then today, is that pattern still true? Still true, Because yeah. uh, fees have gone down to close to zero. Mm-hmm. So are people still getting the market return and- it can't be the case. It can't be true then, right? I don't know. I don't know either. Maybe, Maybe that, that's a next research paper. An aspiring PhD of finance student. Yeah, someone uh, should look at that. that. Yeah. There have been papers that have looked at how Robinhood traders trade and how they make money. But it's not systematic uh, in a way that you can identify the individuals and you can understand, mm-hmm. see their individual trades. They kind of have it as Robinhood as a whole. Um, and there is some evidence, but it's a pretty short window. And, you know, of course, Robinhood traders like growth stocks and growth stocks in the last couple of years have been doing fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it's not a coincidence that, you know, on paper, they look like they're doing well. They look like they, they're p- being able to pick, pick the right stocks uh yep. but i think we need more research to figure out if
1: and more time let's wait 10 years right yeah, let's see how they do it in 10 years yeah if, if the agree. whole thing that's doesn't a very up, academic but... statement
0: yeah but something that's very important right now we should wait 10 years <laughs> to figure
2: out the answer to <laughs> why well, i got to see how much they beat the market <laughs> in 10 years <laughs> well, that's, that's very no, important or the or the, other, or the other academic statement which is we need more data you need to give yeah, us more, we data. Need more data. data you need to give us more data maybe
1: that's a good place to stop that's a good place to stop i agree john thank you so much for enlightening us well, I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about some more of these questions. I, I still have a ton. No, that was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. My
0: pleasure. Wow.
1: I love talking to John. We'll certainly have to have him on again. Yeah, that was great.
0: He can be our roving high, for trade, high frequency trading correspondent or that's something. Right. Something that's a mouthful. Um, I do want to kind of circle back on one thing that I asked him, which ends up being kind of an impossible question, what? which was... You know, I I have in this mind that like in my mind that part of finance is like generating real value from price discovery and, you know, moving dollars from one thing to another in a way that's going to generate economic growth, but there's also rent seeking, right? There's like me creating this like fiber optic cable from New York to Chicago, just to like improve my millisecond information speed by three milliseconds. Then it becomes obsolete. You just got this thing kind of sitting around, right? That's wasteful spending. I think we can all agree with that wasteful use of resources. And so I asked about this proportion of rent seeking, chasing dollars to steal from another person or transfer uh, versus like real economic activity and finance. And John said, well, you know, like, you really, we don't even know how to measure the market size, and so that's kind of an impossible question to answer. But I I do like his approach, which is very much like, look, let's identify socially inefficient outcomes, this this kind of prisoner's dilemma game that's taking place. Let's think about solutions that can, you know, get rid of that rent-seeking incentive. And ultimately, you know, if you get rid of that rent-seeking incentive, then, you know, instead of having these wasteful cables that are being, you know, uh, produced, those resources, whether it's human capital, physical capital, can get diverted to something that's actually productive. So
1: I, I, I love this focus. Yeah, I agree completely. And like you said, it was a good question. And for our listeners out there, if you have another good question... Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening.